As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us now that you would attune, really align our minds and hearts with your word. So I pray now that you would help us to, to listen, to get it, to understand, to believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Malachi and chapter 1. Last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1. We began this last week. Malachi chapter 1. I want to read verses 6 through 14. Malachi chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is Malachi's burden, as he puts it. As a prophet, he has this on him, and he needs to speak it. And and he does, really, though, it's God who speaks it. In 47 of the 55 verses, for those Bible accountants out there, 47 of the 55 verses, God speaks for himself, if you will. It's in the first person. He, He comes directly to them, and it's the Lord who is speaking if you will, through this prophet Malachi, the Lord who is, who is speaking very directly to uh, this people. Israel, at this point in time, north and south, has been devastated, as we know. The people in those areas, in, those, in the land of Israel, both the north and the south, um, have either been killed, have been exiled, been left there uh, to live in ruin and poverty. The city of Jerusalem destroyed The temple destroyed. All of that has happened. God in his graciousness, because he made promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made promises to them. He he brought them back to that land so that the temple would be be rebuilt. The city 
walls rebuilt, the, the city rebuilt, rebuilding. And there they are now, some generations later, in the midst of it, living. And they're in spiritual decline after all of that. So this word of God comes. It's a, it's a covenant word to them. By that I mean God begins his talking to them, his dealings with them by by reminding them of who he is and who they are because of him, who they are in him. That's how covenants with God always begin. Covenants begin with an indicative that is a statement of truth, a statement of fact. Implied therein and then explicit also in this covenant is an imperative. But it always comes in that order. First the indicative, statement of fact, then the imperative, then the command. God says, this is who I am, this is who you are, therefore... He never says, do this so that you can be. Do this so that I will be in relationship with you like this. No, he initiates, he starts, he says, this is true. And because this is true, the outworking of that is this command. We mentioned last Sunday, for instance, when God made covenant at Sinai with Moses. He began by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's the indicative. That's the statement of fact. This is who I am. This is who you are. I'm your deliverer. I'm that one. Now, because of that, because I've shown favor to you, because I've loved you like that, now the logic, the justice, really, since I've done that, what is good and right that is what is moral since I've done that, have no other gods before me. And so so that's it, you see. And here it's the same thing. He begins with them, and he says, I have loved you now that very statement from God to them should elicit from them worship and he explains to them in no uncertain terms about this love we said last Sunday that this love for them was a special love it was a sovereign love it was an electing love it was an unconditional love he compares their lives with the descendants of Esau, their descendants of Jacob. And he says, why is it that you're restored and they will never be? It's because I've loved you. I've accepted you. I've hated him. I've rejected him. And they would have to ask the question, well, why have you loved us? What is there about us compared to Esau that caused you to love us? And God would say, nothing. You're twins. He was the older I took you. I made that decision before you had done anything. Just you. That's how I've loved you. With a special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love. That starts it all out. Implied in that, therefore, is have no other gods before me. Worship me and worship me only. That, that's the point, you see. And what we find here is that they did not worship him acceptably. They did not worship God in, in their times in temple worship. It was not the worship of God. As I mentioned before, earlier in the service, you see, worship is, is, is the praise that we give to God because he's worth it. It, it, it expresses, it declares the worth, the value of God. It, it's his glory, you see. Glory is a, is a word that means weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, weight, heavy. 
and, and the more glorious, the weightier, if you will. And what God is saying here is that I'm most weighty, I'm most glorious. There isn't anything more significant in all the universe than me. Focus of attention should be on me. Not because I'm egotistical, but simply because it's true, it's right. There isn't anything better, any, anything better than me that you can set your gaze upon, that you can live your life to reflect Thus, worship. And so we we praise him for who he is. He's holy. There isn't anyone like him. He's he's holy in in, in his being because he's eternal. He's self-existing. He's self-determining. He's self-sustaining. He needs nothing, no one else. He's holy in his very character. His love is holy, It's perfect love. There isn't any love like this. God demonstrates his love because it was while we were sinners that he sent Christ to die for us. Nobody else would love like that. And he loves like that. His love is holy love. His wisdom is holy wisdom. See, it's omniscient. It's all wise. His power is holy power. It's omnipotent. There isn't any other power like this. It's all his all power, his presence, his omnipresence, he's present everywhere. His holy presence, if you will, his kindness is holy, his goodness is holy. There isn't anything, anyone who loves, who is kind, who is good as he, as he is. We praise him for who he is. We give him thanks for all that he's done. Simply for life and breath, but for those who in the days of Israel in these days of Jacob, they would give him thanks for loving them, for restoring them to their land and their place. Uh, for us who know him through Christ Jesus, we're grateful. We realize in the same way that they were loved, we have been loved in this special way. Why me? Why am I a believer in Jesus? It's the result of this special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love of God and it takes my breath away so we give him thanks because we know without that love we would we'd be condemned we'd have no hope whatsoever yet because of it we have every every reason to hope for eternal life And of course, this worship is a knee-bending worship. It's a submission. It's saying, all right, you're the holy lover of my soul. Your love is, your wisdom is wise. Therefore, uh, I will follow you. I will deny myself and everything that I think, everything that, all of my passions, and I will submit them to you. So it's a praising, thanking, knee-bending, joyful Submission to God. That's what worship. That's what worship is. And in fact, as we read through the scripture, we find that that all of the scripture points to the worship of God. All of the scripture points to the worship of God. If you go back to Genesis, for instance, Genesis 1 and 2, why did Moses begin Genesis chapter 1 with a story of creation? Why did he begin with creation? Well, you might say, well, where else? I'll grant you that. But think about it for a minute. Think about his audience. The people to whom he was writing were people who had been delivered from 
slavery in Egypt. And as he works his way through God as creator, what he's saying to them is that the reasons that all of the gods of Egypt were destroyed is because God made them. And he is sovereign over them. He made the Nile. He made the frogs. He made the light. He made the darkness. He made all of that. God is the Lord. Don't worship anything other than him. Everything else is under him. He just can destroy everything. Why? Because he made it. He's the Lord of all. We go to the book of Exodus. And you remember that that, that, that the first request of Moses to Pharaoh wasn't simply let my people go. It was let my people go so that they can go into the wilderness and have a feast. That is, so that they can go out and worship. And, and, and that, would, that would morph a bit and that would change a bit as, as Moses made the request and it was given back by Pharaoh. Moses said, uh, let my people go so that they serve the Lord in the wilderness. Why? Well, the worship, he said, let my people go so they can worship God together in, in this place. And ultimately, it wasn't just for, for one day, it was, it was forever. He let my people just go, and they went, and they left the place entirely so they could, they could worship. When, when they meet God at Mount Sinai, it's about worship. The first four of the ten words, the first four of the ten commandments deal very directly with the worship of God. The last six worship as well through our lives, but the first four very directly with the worship of God. You shall have no other gods before me. That is, I am the one you're to worship, to praise, to thank, to submit to. I and I alone. And the second commandment, here, you're to worship me, not with pictures that, you know, from your mind, but, but you're to worship me rightly. Worship me as I am, as I reveal myself to be. So you're to worship me alone, and you're to worship me rightly. And my name, that is my very character, my very person, God, you're to honor with everything, even your lips. Never take my name in vain, uh, flippantly. Never trivialize who I am and what I do, because I'm everything, you see. I'm the great king. And then, because of this worship, make certain that one day in seven is set apart to worship me. That you stop working and you gaze upon who I am, so that then everything in your life comes in right perspective. Worship me. Time is necessary to worship me and come together to do that one day in seven. So we see that later as we read through the book of Exodus, God says to them, now, what you need to do is, is, is build a place, this tabernacle and then ultimately a temple. Build this place because there, from there, I will dwell among you. And it's there then that the book of Leviticus lays out very carefully how we're to approach God. He says, I want you to bring this sacrifice to me and it needs to be unblemished. And the reason that a sacrifice needs to be made and that it's unblemished is because the worshiper is blemished. And God wants to make perfectly clear that there's nothing wrong with this animal. That there's no good reason why this animal needs to die. It's perfectly healthy. It's the best of your flock. It's not about the animal. It's about the person bringing it. And this animal stands for you because one of you has to die. Because one of you has sinned. Which one? 
And so it's very clear when this unblemished animal comes, it's, it's not the animal's fault that he's being killed. It's the worshiper's fault that he's being killed because his guilt is being placed upon that animal so that this unholy person can stand in the presence of the one who is holy. Then we come to the book of Deuteronomy, and the key there is the fear of God. All this is true. He reiterates all that's happened. He says, look what God has done for you. Now fear him, revere him, honor him with your, with your lives. And then, and I'm not going to go through the whole Old Testament, on, you know, so relax. But we, we can jump uh, to the book of Psalms. And there we have a whole book in the Old Testament where God says, this is how you're to speak to me. This is how you're to sing to me. This is how you're to worship me. This is how you're to respond to me. These are the words to use as you come into my presence, as you worship me, as you praise me. And then we come to the prophets whose job it is then to call the people back to that very thing, to the worship of God. So as we read through the prophets, we find really three themes running through them. We, the, the theme of sexual immorality. The theme of justice among the people of God. But this one, the big one, idolatry. To worship God and only God. Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus calls the people to worship. Where I read to you this morning out of, out of uh, John, it was, I made a mistake in the bulletin, forgive me. John in chapter 4 where Jesus meets this woman, and, and it, it's about worship, really. And, and she's saying, where should we worship? How should we worship? Who should we worship? And Jesus says, well, you should worship God in spirit and in truth, and I'm the one. And he says, he says listen, the Father is seeking such people, that is people to worship in spirit and truth, such people to worship him. And so you see, Jesus came to seek those to gather those who would worship his Father. We come to the epistles, we find that, that, that the, the, the writers of the epistles, Paul and others, begin to write about, about worship. You know this verse in, in, in Romans in chapter 12. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, which is your spiritual worship. In the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks of, of the mark of the Holy Spirit upon someone's life. How do you know that you're filled with the Holy Spirit? You know that you're filled with the Holy Spirit because you worship. He writes this. He says, do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know it because we, we worship. The Holy Spirit leads us into being grateful to giving thanks to God. And then the Apostle Peter writes of our worship as well. First Peter in chapter 2, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Each of us is a living stone. And we're being joined not only together with God, but with each other so that we can offer, as he puts it, spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, we don't slaughter animals anymore. But these spiritual sacrifices, these sacrifices of praise, of praying, oh, that's what we offer, you see. And then notice how he puts it, verse 9. He says, but you're a chosen race, that special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his that is God's own possession. And here's the reason why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's worship. The declaration, their lips in our lives, the declaration of God's great excellencies, his great mercy. He says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, you're giving him thanks because you know what he's done. It's all about the worship of God. We get to the book of Revelation and the overriding anthem, really, the overriding theme of that whole wonderful, frightfully wonderful book in the New Testament is holy, holy, holy. Heaven and earth is full of your glory. The greatness of God. It's really all about that. The worship of God. But you see, in ancient Israel, in the days of Malachi, they said, verse 13 of chapter 1, what a weariness this is. They were tired. Not simply tired in worship, but tired of worship. They were tired of declaring the worth of God. Now what brings really a person to that point, being, being weary of, 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 of worshiping God? Uh, we could list a number of things, but I think this, especially from this context, and that is, it's, it's when we cease to see the greatness of God. We cease to see how great he is. Because when we cease to see how great he is, then we see, relative to God, other things as being great. That is, we cease to see his glory, the weightiness of God. And when that happens, other things come into play and they seem weightier, more significant, weightier than God. Um, Job, as we looked at him a few weeks ago, saw the grace, the, the glory, the greatness, the weightiness of God, and he worshipped. Isaiah looked at him as well, saw the weightiness, the glory, the greatness of God, and he worshipped. Both of them realized at that moment in time, nothing more significant than God himself. And seeing the greatness of God produced in them humility, produced in them praise, produced in them gratefulness, Caused them to bow the knee, caused them to submit joyfully to God because they saw his, his greatness. Nothing was greater than God. <laughs> Very silly illustration. If we don't see the greatness of the University of Kansas, we might become Mizzou fans. They might seem great all of a sudden. Right? You don't see the great Coke is, you might like Pepsi. But more significantly, we elevate anything above God because we don't see his greatness 
and we cease to worship him. I suppose that a street lamp looks great if you haven't seen the sun. I suppose fireworks can enamor us if we haven't heard thunder or seen lightning. But, but when we really see God, you see, and there's nothing greater than him. One person puts it like this. He says, if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He says, we are content making mud pies in the slums because we can't envision a holiday at the sea. In other words, this seems great because we can't see the greatness of something else. This seems great because we can't see the greatness of God. Our possessions seem great because we can't see the greatness of God. Status that we might have in this life might seem great to us. We can't see the greatness of God. Um, Thus, to worship, we must really see the greatness of God. They did not. So look how it plays out in their lives. Uh, This whole passage that I read is is an accusation reiterated it the first accusation in the first 11 verses the last couple of verses is that accusation reiterated in there's a judgment and in there's the grounds for that judgment god begins with them like this and he says a son honors his father and a servant his master if i am am a father where is my honor if i'm a master where is my fear says the lord of hosts he says see i am great i'm the lord of hosts He uses that expression eight times in these verses. He describes himself as the Lord of hosts. What's that mean? Well, the host is a great army. And he said, I'm the Lord over the great army. And and so everything in the universe does my bidding. So I am great. That's just simply uh, a non-debatable item. I am really great. I control. I'm sovereign over all that is. Now, we could put it like this so you might understand it. I'm a father, the father. The perfect father. And fathers are to be honored. They would know that from the commandment of God to honor your father and mother. To be honored. And he said, listen, I'm a father. You honor your fathers. You look at your father's children. Look at fathers and they see their age and and see their wisdom and see their strength. And they live dependent upon their fathers. They honor their fathers. They speak well of their fathers. That's what it's to be like. And he says, I'm the father. But yet, where's my honor? You give me no honor. Masters are to be honored by servants. They're to be feared by them. That is to be revered. That is to to simply submit to the will of their master. He said, I'm the master. I'm the Lord. I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Where is your fear? And then he looks at the priests who were responsible for all of this. And he says, oh, priest who despise my name. But the priests say, how have we despised your name? And he says, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? And the Lord says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. In other words, they were simply saying, it doesn't really matter the offerings that we make on this altar. It doesn't really matter because God really doesn't matter. So I'll take your lame animals. I'll take your blind animals. I'll take these animals that are defective in various ways and, and we'll just burn them up and, and, and that'll, that'll be okay because it's really okay with God because God really isn't glorious. God really doesn't, really doesn't matter. You see, in the midst of this, they were elevating themselves. They didn't see their need for atonement. They didn't see the greatness of God, His holiness. And so to them, God really didn't 
God really didn't matter. Then he goes on to say to them that uh, uh, this sort of the, the, the ground for his, his, his indictment against them, for this accusation against them. He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, isn't that evil? It's against the commandment of God. It, it just shows that God is not great. Is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? In other words, he's saying, you, you count the governor as more valuable than God. So you'd never give this to the governor because it wouldn't do you any good to give this to the, these lame animals to the governor. But you expect more out of him than out of God. You revere him more than you revere God. You fear him more than you fear God. You honor him more than you honor God. And now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious with us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. And finally, God just simply says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For, here's the reason, for from the shine, rising of the sun to the setting of my, uh, f- to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He says, listen, I don't need you. My name will be great. All of history will end with my name being great. All the nations will worship me. Now, I wonder then, how does all of this uh, apply, really, apply to us individually, corporately? Well, we don't have animals to kill. That's the good thing. I've been very happy about that through the course of my ministry career, that I don't have that to do. I like the barbecue, but butchering would be another thing. But where does it really apply uh, to us? Well, we're offering, as we mentioned earlier, these spiritual sacrifices to God. And the question for us is, are we doing that wholeheartedly, half-heartedly, or no-heartedly? Are we just going through the motions? What does it really mean in the course of our lives? What does it really mean when we gather together to worship? Can we apply it this morning to that when we gather together to worship for our worship times. I wondered, I wonder if I would say, everyone who is here who finds this to be wearisome, leave. I wonder how many would be left at the end. Think about that for your life. As you came in this morning, was it a wearisome task? Was it a no thought habit? Or was it to come to worship God? Really, and, and trust me, I'm not indicting you, but me. Is it genuine for us? Is it real for us? Is it spirit and truth for us? Do we anticipate that we're here to worship God? If we really are here to worship God, how would that change us or would it? How would that really change all that we are? It's difficult, I suspect, in some ways on Sunday mornings to to come and gather to worship. There's a great deal that distracts us in our day. I'm not sure that we're more distracted than people from other generations. I don't know. I assume that every generation had their own challenges in gathering to worship. In some ways, it's way easier for us. 
It's easier because we drive here in air-conditioned or heated cars, depending on what we need. It's, it's easy for us because we've generally slept well the night before. Uh, it's easier for us for all kinds of very convenient things that we have in these days that others perhaps didn't in other days. It isn't like our brothers and sisters, even in other parts of the country, that are walking 14 miles to go to church and or their lives are threatened. None of that. There are some, though, distractions for us. It's true that our culture, at least in Lawrence, Kansas, increasingly doesn't accommodate Sundays for us. There are times throughout the history of our community here, I suspect, and certainly throughout our country, that Sundays uh, uh, were accommodated, that is, Christians were accommodated to worship on Sundays. That's not true anymore. There's all kinds of things scheduled on Sunday mornings, making it less uh, um, convenient, I suppose, for us to gather on any day of the week, but most especially on Sunday, Sunday morning together I may say I think that's a good thing for us a challenging thing for us the question for us is do we value the worship of God now I think the reason that there's these distractions in our day is because I think instinctively, intuitively, in the hearts of human beings, we know that we need rest. We know that we need a break from work. We know that there's a, a cycle to life that's good for us. And, and so the cycle that, that has been adapted because of creation, really, because of the instinct that we have still within us of the, of the common grace of God at work, is one day in seven. One day in seven to set aside to have rest. Well, our culture says that we need to stop and one day out of seven and put our gaze upon ourselves, really. How many times do I hear do people say, Oh, Sunday's my only day to really sleep in. Sunday's my only day to really X, Y, Z, whatever that happens to be. Now, first of all, we all realize that probably isn't true. But it could be another day that we could grab some of that. So, so it isn't quite true that it's the only day. But, but people thinking, I need rest. And they're right. They do need rest. Break from work. Yes, that's how we're wired. That's how God made us. But real rest, you see, real rest for the human heart is to stop. And to gaze upon God. Because real rest comes when we know that God is ruling and reigning. Real rest comes when we know that we belong to him. That's real rest. We, we think real rest comes when we sleep in. Real rest comes when we have a leisurely morning. Real rest comes when, when we're out recreating in some way, shape, or form. And, and all that provides a certain measure of something of rest, but, but not real rest. Not the rest that God has put in us. Not the rest that's really necessary for us. Not the rest that comes from knowing that God is ruling and reigning. Not the rest that comes to know that we belong to this one who's ruling and reigning. Not the rest that comes to those who know that they belong to this one who's ruling and reigning in such a way that's causing all things to work together for good, regardless of how it looks at the moment. That's real rest. Now, sadly, just as an aside, the ones most affected by this is our children. 
because there's all kinds of distractions, all kinds of things going on on Sundays for our kids, recreationally and otherwise, and it will only increase. And so our kids are the ones who are most affected by this. And I say that so that we can all realize who's behind this. Because you see, Satan always targets the most vulnerable. And so that aspect of all of this, I suggest to you, is from the evil one. And it's affecting mostly our kids. All these things happening on Sunday mornings and they're having to say, but, 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 but I like baseball or I like basketball or I like doing this or I like doing that. It's really fun and it is really fun for them to do it and we want them to do it. But, but that's Satan against the vulnerability of our children. We must watch that and despise him for. But, but, but this idea of coming together to worship, gathering to worship, the necessity of us to be able to do that, to join together, to, to worship, to worship God. That's why we, we really front and load our worship services. Because you see, our worship services aren't about us. It's about God. So we don't begin with a pep talk. We don't begin with a welcome. We don't begin talking about us at all. You see, I don't want us to be confused. It isn't about the leaders. It's not about, we're just prompters up here. And we have to deal with that. In fact, um, if I must confess, Jerry Bridges wrote a book a number of years ago called The Joy of Fearing God. And in it he writes this. He says, we must not only make it our aim to glorify God, we should also aim not to seek glory or praise for ourselves. Our problem is that we too often desire very subtly and perhaps even unconsciously to share in God's glory. As one of my pastor friends said about his sermons, I want people to leave the service saying, isn't God great? But in my heart, I also say, isn't Bill great? You should never make confession to anyone who writes books. All of us, if we're honest, can identify with my friend Bill. All of us want to look good to others. We enjoy being commended for our Christian character and good behavior. It isn't about us. It's not about the leaders. It's, not about, it's about God, you see. Everyone who participates here is simply a, a prompter to help all of us, help all of us worship. That's what we're here to do. This service isn't a, it's not a pep rally, if you will, though I hope you're encouraged at the end of the day. It isn't a time when we recruit to get people to do the nursery and all of that, though I, I hope you do. And perhaps be motivated to serve in various ways because of this time of worship. But that's not the, the aim of it. It's, it's, not a, it's not a care fest, if you will, that we're even trying to care for one another and the needs of one another so much. Though I hope at the end of the day, you're cared for on a Sunday. You feel that care. It isn't about even the community of us. It, it's really about God. It's not even a Bible lesson teaching. This will come as a surprise to you. I don't expect you to remember sermons. The goal is to elicit praise to God. The goal of it is to spend the time talking about God in such a way that you say, isn't he great? 
isn't everything else to be in submission to him, to see his weight, his greatness, so that at the end of the day, at the end of the service, you leave here, at least in some sense, ready for the week, putting everything under him, in submission to him. There's no test at the end. So I repeat so much. I don't expect you to know Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. That's just getting us somewhere to see the greatness of God. Look at what he's done. Look at who he is. And so this service of worship uh, that, that we have, we begin holy, holy, holy. That, that's where we start. Now, if you're coming into worship, you're probably not quite there yet. That's a prompt to you. That's beginning to wrap your mind around who God is. In fact, some of you are still two blocks away. Um, I love you. This is the worship of God. I don't... I, I think if I said... God is just running a bit behind. He's gracious and kind. But I think he would say, but I'm God. He doesn't want us to miss this. And he doesn't want to miss us singing this. And then we have a prayer of invocation, which is our way of, of invoking his presence, if you will, our way of acknowledging him of calling, invoke, to call upon him. That's what we do next, you see. And then we listen to his call to worship and we respond to that. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. You're great and all the nations you've made shall come and worship before you glorify your name. And then our response, teach me your way. I give thanks to you, O God, with my whole heart and I will glorify your name forever. And if you're like me, when you say that, there's, 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 there's just a little maybe a big twinge of, oh yes, 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 yes. Everything's beginning to align again. I'm starting to see things rightly. This is rest. I'm beginning to see things rightly that, that I'm to glorify your name forever. And then, and then why? Well, because he's the only one who can rescue us. He's the only one. Who, no one else can rescue us. We're utterly lost without him. And then that's wrapping our mind around that as well. And then whatever else, profession of faith, the reading of scripture, whatever comes next. This sense of, yes, this is true about, about God. And as I mentioned before, we did the Apostles' Creed. We rather ho-hum creeds, you know. We just sort of say them again because we've been saying them all these years, if you will, if you're in that tradition. But this should thrill our souls. The first two words... I believe. Do you know the miracle that that is? That's an I love Jacob but hated Esau miracle. That's I loved you. So that my spirit would come upon you in such a way that would convince you of this truth. So that you would believe we should stop and allow the goosebumps to gather at that point. God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Wow. That's significant, you see. That's weightier than anything. That puts everything else. 
Nothing else at that moment in time matters. I have to tell you, when tragedy hits my life and sometimes yours, some of the first thoughts and words out of my mind, out of my mouth is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I mean, it just comes out. Because at that point, that sort of covers everything. That puts everything in context. That, that gets everything kind of in right perspective, right order. And, and then we confess. And at that point in time, you see, I don't know about you, but I really need to. In the presence of God, I need to be able to say, you know, God, I'm bringing you lame stuff here. <laughs> I'm bringing you lame praise. I'm bringing you blind thanks. I'm just here, you know, through the motions of this. Give me a moment to just say I'm sorry and really now help me. Uh, honor you. I fear you as I, as I ought, you see. And then, then we pick it up again to begin to praise him and to worship him. And then we, we pray various prayers, some Sundays, this one of thanksgiving. You see, all of these things, the responsive readings and, 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 and responsive anything and unison prayers and things you're voicing, we, all of us need to find our voice. This isn't a, a performance at all, you see, at all. People say, you know, why don't you worship leaders sort of dance around and do other stuff? Because they'd rather not be noticed. They're prompters. One of the reasons we're really happy these projection screens are on both sides is because that's where you look, you don't look at them. You see? Because it's not about them. They're just prompters to help all of us do this. And God likes singing. If you don't sing, you need to talk that over really hard with God by reading the Psalms Right? He likes singing. Even if you don't do it well. Maybe even especially the side of glory. Because then it's so much better the other side. He likes it. I know it's uncomfortable. We don't sing as a culture anymore. I grew up in an immigrant family of English and Irish poor people. So we sang all the time. Every weekend. Every Friday night. Every Saturday night. Until my mother didn't like all the influence of my uncles on me. <laughs> Some of the songs. People don't sing much. God really likes singing. And it's not a matter about whether you like the song or not. You're not the one being worshipped. The question is, does God really like the song? That's the point of it, isn't it? And so we submit to the company of people. And we worship him. And then the word comes, so we, we listen. And you see this hour and 17 minutes means everything. It sets everything else up. We must do this. And we must do this wholeheartedly. At least by the end. We get it. So that when we leave, we've stopped and gazed and everything 
is where it should be. God is great. And we are humbled in such a way that it induces praise and thanks and joyful submission. The great news is we don't have to make sacrifices because the perfect sacrifice has been made. The very one who was completely unblemished, the very one who didn't deserve it at all. It was very clear he doesn't deserve to die. So the question is, who deserves to die? Us. He did it. Now our sacrifice is worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that we really would get it that these times of gathering would inform the worship of our lives. Help us. Help us on Sundays to do this in such a way. It would be a great blessing to you first, God, that you would be worshipped on Sundays from the rising of the sun to its setting. And one day over all the earth.